I don't want to break that spell, Josh. Thank you so much. That was so beautiful. It is good to be with you all on today, as Perry said, our Founders Day, our celebration each year, where we are joined by other ethical societies across the country who honor the founding of ethical culture, the movement as a whole, and also the founding, the beginning, and the continual building and rebuilding of the individual ethical societies um, that we call home. Last year, on our Founders Day, we honored those who had been members 20 years or more. And I found it so inspiring to see those folks and to imagine all of the work that they had put into our community, all the time they had spent. This year, I worked with the stewardship team on our Founders Day celebration, and we wanted to look at a more specific slice in our society's history. Ten years ago, a time here in 2007 and the years just before and just after of huge transition in our society, and you'll hear more about that in a moment, a time of uncertainty, of possibility, of excitement, and of a lot of work and investment. I asked a number of members to share with me their reflections on that time, and I loved how Nancy McGuire put it. She was part of the committee that researched a leadership transition. One of the things the society was in the middle of was um, figuring out uh, who they would bring in as the new senior leader. And so she was part of this committee researching that. She said uh, they got advice from a, a variety of different religious groups, all of whom told us to expect a big drop-off in attendance, a loss of members, and tight times financially during the transition. Also, we were told to expect disagreements, power plays, stress, as various factions made their bid to shape the next phase of the organization. And, she said, we probably shouldn't take on any major projects during that time. <laughs> Those who were here 10 years ago are laughing because during that time of leadership transition, they were also in the middle, as Nancy writes, of a $3 million construction project reassessing our membership in the American Ethical Union. I will leave it to others to tell you more about the details of that time. I'm so glad to have with us this morning Richard Nugent, who served as interim senior leader for two years. I um, followed him in that position, and I am really grateful for the work that he did with this community during his time, and so I'm so pleased he's able to join us this morning. And then you'll hear from three members of WES, Perry Setman, uh, who is a member of the stewardship team, K.O. Gamber, also a member of the stewardship team, and her wife, Sarah Morgan. And then I'll come back and share a few more memories from folks of that time. I'm appreciative of all uh, four of those people being willing to share their experiences of this dramatic and exciting moment 10 years ago in this society's history. Good morning. So just as the return of the Chicadas to Washington was unexpected, <laughs> Amanda's phone call a few weeks ago inviting my family and I to be here was somewhat also unexpected. So it's great to be here. In fact, let me ask my wife Eileen and my son Asa to stand for those of you who remember them. And 
and I'm going to capture this moment. This seems to be, you know, as someone who's over 60, I'm struggling to kind of be with it. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> when I close my eyes, I find it's hard to believe that nine years have elapsed since our time ended and Amanda's time with you began. So much has happened in those nine years, including, which is hard to believe, including the entire presidency of Barack Obama. <laughs> so much has happened. And I would never have said nine years ago that I look back fondly on George Bush's tenure. <laughs> I'm glad you're in the resistance. Um, as I look around this building, and I follow your activities on Facebook and chat with Amanda at collegial gatherings and gaze upon your faces today, it's apparent that you have used your time wisely. Take a moment. Look at your family and friends. Remember those who are no longer here and let your success wash over you. You have done well since we parted in 2008. In a similar fashion, my family and I have kept busy. Our son Asa is a rising senior in high school. My wife Eileen, yeah, exactly. <laughs> My wife, Eileen, has completed 27 years of service at the State Department. Her final assignment was helping to regulate the international trade in conflict minerals. And if you want to know what that is, you only have to look inside your cell phone. Conflict minerals and blood diamonds. In doing so, she traveled frequently to Africa and to Europe. I travel a lot, too. But my travels are not as exotic unless you consider Boston exotic. Since leaving West, I've been on the staff of the National Unitarian Universalist Association. My staff and I manage our national health plan and the retirement and other compensation related plans that we administer on behalf of our 1,000 congregations, including the Washington Ethical Society. It's the perfect time, it's the perfect job for this unrepentant policy wonk turned minister. For those of you who are new, before going into the ministry 20-ish years ago, I uh, spent 22 or so years doing public policy here in Washington. You can take the public policy person out of Washington, but you can't take the public policy. In inviting me to speak here today, Amanda asked me to reflect upon our time together. I really appreciated the question. Upon reflection, transformative is the one word that really jumped out at me. The time we spent working and dreaming together was a transformative bridge that connected the first six decades of your history, which included the leadership of Don Montagna and Mary Herman, and 
others to the present chapter of your history under Amanda's leadership. Our time together was intense. <laughs> yeah, it was, wasn't it? It was intense, filled with a little bit of drama and the eyes of many successful. In just two short years, and I'm only going to name a few, in just two short years, you sorted out several challenging issues associated with governance, programming, and staffing. It is difficult for any organization to say goodbye to a valued leader, and even more so after 34 years. In doing so, issues often arise, and they did here. You wrestled with how to best to support your long-standing partnership with villages in El Salvador, undertook a thorough review of your religious education program, and committed to providing employee benefits to your staff for the first time. And that was huge. These were all big steps that were not easily taken, but you took them. You wrestled with your denominational identity, the ties of which had been frayed almost to the breaking point. Before I arrived, your board had recommended disaffiliation with the American Ethical Union. In doing so, you chose to rebuild healthy ties to the AEU while working to associate yourselves with the Unitarian Universalist Association. You significantly, significantly expanded your footprint by joining your two original buildings into this magnificent space. So much better than having to dodge the raindrops between the two buildings when I first arrived. In expanding this building, you did more than just build a building, but you doubled down on the future of your special community of faith. And during our time together, you took an exhaustive, and I do mean exhaustive, nationwide search for a new senior leader. And you found in your own backyard the extraordinarily talented Amanda Poppy, whom you called as your senior leader. Much more can be said and will be said by others. Throughout our time together, your vision of being transformative in the lives of your members and those of the broader community was paramount. More importantly, you have acted upon your vision in ways large and small. The West community is a living expression of deeds before creeds. As a community of faith, together, you strive to elicit the best in others. You certainly did in me. In such a time as ours, in such a city as this, your work is life-transforming work. May you continue to build upon the past to advance a more inclusive and progressive future. So may it be. Of the eight congregations that I served as an interim, West holds a special place in my heart. So thank you, Amanda, for 
extending this invitation to me and my family to be with you this morning. I look forward to spending some time in coffee hour after today's service. I've been asked to chat for a few minutes about my involvement in WES, in particular in the transitions of about 10 years ago. But to put it in perspective, we have to go a bit further back. I grew up only three blocks from here and went to Shepherd Elementary School right across the street. Now, when I was younger, I remember passing by WES and wondering what sort of secret society was meeting in a couple of cinder block bunkers with very serious men in suits and ties coming back and forth. The look was slightly softened when a red awning was added in front of the larger building, which was the one that led to this meeting hall. Right after you came in the front doors of that building, you faced a long stairway that went down to the bathrooms that were built in the 1950s. There were also a couple of steps that had to be navigated um, to get up to the main meeting hall. Now, the offices of the leader and the staff were next door in their own separate bunker, and you had to walk outside to get from one bunker to the other. Now, the whole thing really reminded me of a bomb shelter, which was very big during the Cold War, and which I understand are making a comeback right now. Despite the off-putting aesthetics, <clears throat> I started coming here in the 80s at the behest of my girlfriend, Susan Ogden, who was then chair of the School for Ethics. I suppose she saw in me some half-decent raw material, and I think she wanted me to learn the difference between a thought and a feeling, which I did not know at the time, and I actually learned that difference in a course called Introduction to relationship building. Now Susan and I were married here in 1988, which is when I became a member. And over the years, my involvement in WES activities and uh, went up, as did my yearly pledge. Now one day in the mid-2000s, I got an invitation to have lunch with Don Montagna, the senior leader, at Bombay Cafe which was a restaurant that used to be at the corner of Georgia and Bonifant, a block or so from my office. It was very unusual to get an invitation from lunch, which usually means that Don would pay for lunch, so I was on, on my guard. During lunch, he told me that Wes had plans to put an elevator in the building between the basement and the first floor to make the building accessible which I thought was a wonderful idea. The name of the campaign would be Opening Doors. Then he said that as long as there's going to be this construction and disruption, that if enough money could be raised, some other improvements could be made at the same time. Uh, the most significant of which would be to connect the two bunkers, put in new bathrooms, and maybe even a new kitchen. Then he took out a pen and on a napkin, he drew a pyramid, which in two dimensions was, was a triangle. He drew a line, he cut it into four or five horizontal slices, and then he divided each horizontal slice with a vertical, several vertical lines to make bricks, if you can imagine that. 
And in the brick, the single brick at the top, he wrote the number 100. And the two bricks under that, he wrote 75 in each brick. And then three bricks, he wrote 50, 50, 50, and so on and so forth. Then he made his pitch. He said that he had consulted with a fundraising professional and was told that a successful capital campaign needs each one of these bricks to be pledged by someone. And that if that happens, then there's a very good chance that enough money could be raised to do what we wanted to do. <clears throat> and then, before I finish my meal, he said that the key to success of selling bricks was to have a lead giver. Someone who committed to the top brick to pledging $100,000. He said if someone did that and also committed to calling on other members to sell other bricks, the capital campaign would be successful. And without it, he said, it would not succeed. Then, the ask. He wanted me to commit to pledging the top brick and then to solicit others for the other bricks. He said I would be in the perfect position to do that because I was leading by example. So after I scraped myself off the floor and made quite a long visit to the bathroom, I came back and I said yes. It felt like I was really going out on a limb, not only because of the money, but because I had to ask other people for money. But it turned out actually to be a lot of fun going around to the homes of Joe London and Barbara Searle and Sarah Morgan and K.O. Gamber and John and Julie Campbell and many, many others to um, draw, draw the pyramid, draw the bricks, put the numbers in, and ask them to pick a brick. We told each other stories of why we loved Wes. Um, some of the people were very uneasy about the money, so as instructed, I pointed to the top brick and told them this is what I pledged. And then, just like Don said, they stepped up to the plate and took a brick. And I said yes six years later for the second capital campaign when the amount of money we needed was far larger to try and burn the mortgage. The process was a, was a bit easier that time because there was a whole group of members who committed to calling on other people to solicit bricks, so to speak. I wasn't the only one. So every now and then, folks ask me why I give so much money to Wes. And the answer is always the same, and it's really an easy answer. I love Wes. I love the warmth of my community. I love how I feel on Sunday when I walk through the front doors, seeing my dear friends. It feels like home to me. And I love what Wes does for our members and families, and the children, and for those hurting in the world. The bottom line, really, is it simply makes me feel good to give money to an organization where I know the effect of my gift will be multiplied many-fold that will lead to lasting improvements in the lives of so many people long after I'm gone. 
Many people were generous before me. Many will hopefully be inspired after me. It feels like I am just doing my part. Frankly, it's also been a way that I've justified my somewhat contradictory addiction to my capitalist law profession by robbing from the rich corporate clients who I represent and giving to the relatively poor the charity closest to my heart, the Washington Ethical Society. Thank you. So I guess it's now good afternoon. Um, I am Kao and this is my wife, Sarah. And I am a member of the West Stewardship Team. For many months now, the team has been talking about the need to make monetary generosity more visible at WES. We've had meetings with major donors, have discussed recognition of those donors with the board, and have deeply interrogated why we believe that effort is necessary. I have been completely behind the effort. I think it's vital, um, in large part because we find it difficult to talk about money, not only at WES, but in other facets of our lives. In women's studies, we often speak about the need for girls and women to advocate for themselves in terms of salary. Whether you're the girl lifeguard at the community pool or the woman professor at the university, you need to ask for parity in terms of money. And those conversations are difficult. This conversation is even more difficult because I'm calling for transparency that feels more uncomfortable and rarely is asked for. Months ago, I asked Sarah if she would be part of this platform, and she agreed, somewhat reluctantly. Very reluctantly. <laughs> and last night, she was like, never again. <laughs> so, As this day loomed, we've looked at each other with real trepidation. It isn't easy being here publicly saying we gave a major financial donation to Wes. So, as Amanda alluded to, 2008 was a pivotal moment in West history. The moment began with a desire to add a ramp and an elevator so that people would have access to our physical building. And once inside, they would no longer experience the stark separation of the upstairs culture from the downstairs culture due to that forbidding steep set of stairs. And over a few months' time, the elevator became a metaphor for the many ways West was about to change in order to make ethical culture and our specific West community accessible to more people. At this important point in our history, we not only took on building accessibility, we took on everything. We uh, had community-altering projects that included the upgrade to our physical space, uh, exploring the alliance with the UUs. We began the process of searching for a new leader. We completely examined and, and started a revamp of the edu religious education program. And we began the search for a new leader and all the research that went into that. We did this all at the same time. As you would expect, because it's Wes, there was a great deal of research that went into each of these efforts. <laughs> Members were involved on all levels, from studying the finances to interviewing potential architects. 
from investigating how many sinks we might need in our new kitchen, to researching best practices for conducting a leader search, from learning about what it would mean if we affiliated with the uh, Unitarians and how could we still honor our origins as an ethical society, to deciding how to best commemorate the fact that our new building would require cutting down a tree much loved by all of us, but especially the Sunday school children. In order for these projects to come to fruition, we all took a leap of faith. To that end, many of us made a substantial financial pledge to Wes. Even as we did so, we knew that we were likely to lose some members for any number of reasons. Perhaps they wouldn't want to be associated with the UUs. Or perhaps they would find that they don't really like the new leader, whoever that may be. Perhaps in the end they would discover that they really didn't want West to grow once they started seeing many new faces and the building getting more crowded. So we felt vulnerable. But we had to believe that enough people would stay and enough people would join. And that was the leap of faith. Financing West's future was more important than our immediate personal concerns. And both of us knew we were financing a future we might decide we would not be privy to or comfortable with. Nevertheless, we decided to, to pledge a large amount for us. Personally, Sarah and I dug as deeply as we could. We diverted money, some would say we stole money, from our daughter's college fund in order to ensure that the goals of the capital campaign could be met. And I'll say that if you spring forward a few years, our daughter Blake further contributed to this effort by choosing to go to Temple University, a state university in Philadelphia, rather than the enormously more expensive private school she was admitted to. So it was a sacrifice for the whole family. Today, Blake is paying back student loans she would not have had and we too are still paying back loans we took out. And we know that many of you also took that giant leap along with us. We are so grateful for the many sacrifices others made to generously contribute to Wes at this important time. And I'd like to make clear that as we move forward, the stories of others who gave so generously also will become part of this larger narrative of giving. Making these financial sacrifices was not easy. They had real impact on the lives of these individuals and their families. But I know of no one who contributed at the very edge of their means who regrets doing so. For me, it was all definitely worth it. Wes has the accessibility we need. Our new leader is magnificent. Our community is growing. And in case you're worried about what happened to Blake, she absolutely thrived at Temple and had her first professional job upon graduation. <laughs> there will be other pivotal moments at WES. We all will be asked not only to give of our time envisioning a new future for WES, but we also will be asked to finance that future. Many of the people who are at West today wouldn't be here if it weren't for the generosity and belief of the donors who pledged to the capital campaigns that began in 2008. We believe that visibly honoring those donors pays tribute to that prior leap of faith and, and paves the way for future giving. 
There are competing forces in me. The biggest part of me just wants to be anonymous. And part of me, quite honestly, also wants you to know what a sacrifice it was. Both Kayo and I have asked, why do we have to be dead in order for someone to speak about the fact that when we could, we gave generously? <laughs> we need to talk about this kind of giving. We need to make it okay to give and to be recognized for doing so. The decision to give a major donation altered our lives. Yes, it altered our lives financially, but more importantly, it altered our lives by deepening our relationship with Wes. If we had a chance to do it all again, would we, could we? <laughs> the answer is yes. When we pledge money to Wes each month and during capital campaigns, we pledge to the best part of ourselves and to a community we know who have been and will be here for us and will be here long, long after we are gone. Thank you. As I hear the stories of those who gave resources and time and work, blood, sweat, and tears to Wes over the years, I find myself um, gripped by both a sense of deep gratitude and the heavy mantle of responsibility. The sense of being here now, having arrived just after all of these transitions, and I cannot tell you how glad I am I was not here during construction. <laughs> or during all of these task forces. <laughs> I'm not sure which is worse. The staff used to have to hold their meetings at Parkway Deli because there was no staff space available in the building. And then there are all of these reports which you'll hear about in just a moment. As I think about all of this, I am just awestruck by the time, work, and love that went into the making of this community. I think um, about words that I've had from folks who, who sent in their remembrances of this time, all of them pointing to the um, thoughtfulness and engagement, as Jennifer Dreyfus put it, that the West community showed as we thought through these issues. She wrote, despite there being lots of strong feelings, we took the time to listen to each other. Amazing, thoughtful, and committed community. Ray Van Hout remembers, we had a lot of change on our plate and the discussions were heated but ethical, exclamation point. <laughs> Todd Wayman remembers um, a story, those were big times, he said, Todd served as head usher for many years here at the Washington Ethical Society. He says, for a couple of months the main doors were out of commission and we were using the back door to enter the building, which as I understand, I didn't see this, but it was quite difficult to find, I think, that back door. So Todd recalls, we even had a memorial service and I had my usher team out on the corners flagging people down and showing them up the alley with flowers in our lapels, no less. Perry Bider wrote, I'm very proud of the way our community addressed the important and potentially explosive issue of affiliation. I think it was a model of collective discernment. We took our time, roughly two years, people cared and participated actively, and the process was transparent. The outcome was as good as we could have hoped for, not only in the substance of the decision, but in the relatively small impact on community cohesion and relationships. 
It's so clear to me that we, those of us who joined after this time, wouldn't be here without the people who embodied their values by giving significantly, giving time, giving thought and care, and giving resources. And so we wanted to take a moment to just honor many of the specific task forces, committees, and groups of people during that time. And I'll ask Perry to join me to help me read these names. We start back in 2003 when the Transition Research Task Force prepared a report for the board that was led by Karen schofield Lika and included Craig Alexander, Dill Boland, John Campbell, Michael Culleton, Joe London, Nancy McGuire, Ken Siebert, Lynn Wayman, Bob Wentworth, and Mary Herman and Don Montagna as staff liaisons. Then there was the Growth and Sustainability Task Force that reported in 2005. Mary Herman chaired that. Julie Campbell, Jennifer Lowe, Michelle Harvey, Christine Parcelli, Laura Steele, Linda Keeley, Ray Van Hout, Jeff Kuhn, and Bob Wentworth served. The original donors to the first capital campaign and the second, these were donors who gave $25,000 or more, and then they were joined by people who gave in many, many denominations and gifts throughout the society. Those initial donors were John and included John and Julie Campbell, John and Abby Dakin, K.O. Gamber and Sarah Morgan, Mary Haber, Marty and Michelle Kaufman, Linda and David Keeley, Peter Kent and Sharon Newworth, Joe London, Lindsay Luke, Bob Bacorny and Laura Bradshaw, Donna Radner, Rich and Mary Ruth Reese, Susan Runner and Bernie Gold, Perry Sedman, Barbara Searle, Laura Steele, Craig and Kate Thornton, Todd and Lynn Wayman, Ross Wells and Beth Baker. Leadership Transition Task Force reported in January 2006. Michael Culleton and Sarah Morgan were co-champions of that task force. John Campbell, Julie Campbell, Jennifer Lowe, Karen Scofield-Lika, and Lynn Wayman served. After the leadership transition, let me see, this is the third transition task force I think we have, then the interim leadership search committee, which wrote a report in 2006. And I'll just note that the board had to read all of these reports. So. <laughs> That was uh, co-chaired by Michael Culleton and Jennifer Lowe and included Perry Bider, Michelle Harvey, Christine Parcelli, Tisna Vildelson van Seiten, Todd Wayman, Pam Williams, and Mary Herman ex officio. The Committee on West's AEU membership choice was co-led by me and Jennifer Dreyfus with Richard Nugent as the interim senior leader, Jeff Kuhn as the board liaison, Craig Alexander, John Dakin, Catherine O'Kester, Hugh Taft-Morales, and Todd Wayman. That committee turned into then the Dual Membership Task Force, which reported in September 2007. Perry and Jennifer Lowe were co-chairs with Carithia Fisher, Chris Matias, Catherine O'Kester, Rich Reese, Mari Rothman, and Barbara Searle, along with Craig Alexander on the board and Mary Herman and Richard Nugent as staff liaisons. The Religious Education 360 report in 2008 was chaired by Pam Williams and Abby Dakin, Alan Kahn, Carl Kosak, Annetta Sawyer, Donna Taylor, Amy Wasserstrom, and Peggy Gates served. And then finally, the Senior Leader Search Committee, which produced not a report to read, thank goodness, at this point, but instead a finished product. Their finished product was a candidate. Um, that was co-led by Bob Wentworth and K.O. Gamber and included Anna Gillis, Perry Sedman, Craig Thornton, Christine Parcelli, and Susan Runner. 
I hear all these names and know that each name represented work and love, time and gifts to this community. And I want to invite you to simply honor those people at this moment. I think too of the traditions we are in the midst, the transitions we are in the midst of now. I wonder what the people of 10 years in the future, the people of 2027, when surely there will be flying cars, what they will say of us, what we will have become as this community, how we will look different, sound different, be different, what leaps of faith we will have taken. I think in gratitude and commitment of all those who have gone before and those who will come in the future.